Esther chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. This is the inerrant word of God. Let's uh, submit our hearts to it. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled themselves together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. There were the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning the matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Amen. Father, we come before your word with awe and reverence as we understand the intricacies of your providence, as we see your uh, hand that has perfectly laid out salvation from beginning to end in your word, many different authors throughout many different times, and yet, Father, you have given one message, and what a beautiful message it is. Father, we comfort our hearts in it. And it is our desire to continue to worship as we listen to your word. Please, I pray, anoint my lips and enable me to preach as I ought and enable each one of us to be hearers and doers of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the last sermon on the uh, book of Esther. I think we've covered most everything that I'd wanted to cover uh, in the book. And today we're just going to look at the symbolism of the Feast of Purim. Colossians 2.17 says that all of the Old Testament feasts and festivals were, quote, a shadow of the things to come. What does he mean by a shadow? A shadow of the things to come. Hebrews 10.1 says the same thing. It says the ceremonial laws were, quote, a shadow of the good things to come. Now, he indicates we're entering into the good things uh, of the kingdom, but those feasts and those festivals and all of the other ceremonial laws, they foreshadowed those good things to come, and some of them even yet future to us. Now, last week we saw that there are two historical events in this book which are a shadow into the future, just like a, a tree 
can cast a shadow 100 feet to where you are, these uh, festivals were doing the same thing up into the New Testament. And when the sun is behind you and it's shining, your shadow is always going to move ahead of you. So if you try to sneak up on somebody we mentioned last week uh, and the sun's behind you, you're not going to be able to do it because your shadow reaches them before you do. That's what foreshadowing is about. And we saw last week that even though a shadow is kind of vague in some ways, it's not as clear as the, the prophetic statements of Scripture, these picture prophecies, they're kind of vague, just like a shadow. You, you can tell maybe that it's your daughter or your son or your mother that's coming up behind you from the shadow, but you're not going to be able to make out a lot of details. That's similar, but it's really remarkable how many details are found in these feasts and festivals of the Old Testament. By the way, a symbol that just came to me when I was going over the uh, sermon uh, earlier uh, if you want to know how you ought to treat the ceremonial laws, think of the sun. And just imagine yourself traversing history from the time of Adam until the end of time and you're heading from east to west. When you're starting on your journey, the sun is behind you, and so the shadows are being cast ahead of you. They're pointing to the cross. When you get to the time of the cross, that's noon, the sun is straight overhead, so there is no shadow, right? Because you're supposed to be looking at Jesus. You're not supposed to be looking at the shadows. Everything is revolving around Christ. When you go from Christ and onward, you're not looking for the most part at the shadows either. You're moving forward, but you're enjoying all of the things that Christ has enabled uh, because of his fulfillment of those shadows. But when you look back, because the sun's ahead of you now, it's in the afternoon, your shadow is going behind you. In fact, the further along that you go the more details you're going to see because there's more and more of those prophecies that are fulfilled and so the shadows are going to be you know elongated and you're going to be able to see the the definition a lot more i don't know maybe it's not a helpful uh, image but for me it's helpful in in terms of we're not really preoccupied with celebrating all of those shadows but we can still learn from them when we look back and that's what we're going to try to do this morning last week we saw there's two pictures in this book that portray Christ's work in his kingdom. The first one is the battle of Gog and Magog, the battle of Amalek. Amalek has always been a symbol of humanism seeking to fight against Christ's kingdom. And really, it should be subsumed under the Purim. It really is one symbol in a sense. But the second picture is this feast of Purim. Now, you may not have realized it, but all of the Old Testament festivals portray a different facet of Christ's work. They're not all pointing to the same thing. It's a different facet, and even the order in which they are historically fulfilled is foreshadowed by the order in which they occur in the calendar. And I've given an outline that you can maybe pull out. It's on the back side of your outline. It's this um, chart here. And if you pull that out, I thought it'd be good for me to give a brief overview on how all of the festivals kind of cast a shadow into the future in the Old Testament top left-hand side in the black part, you'll see an S and a C, and defining above it is what the S and the C stands for. It's the sacred calendar and the civil calendar. And you need to realize that in the Old Testament, there were two calendars that were followed by the Jews. God authorized both of those calendars, but there was a sacred one that covered all of the church issues, and there was a civil one that covered the business issues and covered the and so it makes it kind of complicated sometimes when it says it's in the fifth month. You've got to look back, okay, a few chapters, okay, which is the fifth month? Are we talking about sacred calendar or civil calendar? So it does make it sometimes challenging. But God deliberately structured the calendars that way so that we would be able to see he's got two ways in which he can symbolize truth with regard to different events in the Old Testament. It's very important that we understand the distinction between those two. Now, if you want evidence of whether Purim is simply a secular holiday authorized by man, like some people make it out to be, or whether it's a sacred holiday that's authorized by God, all you have to do is look at the calendar that the inspired writer, that God moved the inspired writer to use. And um, uh, he makes it very clear in chapter 9, verse 1, that it's the sacred calendar. He says, now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, now, he didn't say the sixth month. If it was the sixth month, we'd know immediately that it was a civil calendar that he was talking about. 
but he defines it as one of God's sacred feasts because he puts it within the sacred calendar. Now, we gave many other reasons before as to why this was a God-authorized feast, but this is one that I, I forgot to give. And if I remember, maybe later on I'll, I'll, I'll share with you why that can be really significant. For example, on the Feast of Trumpets, you'll see that it occurs in the seventh month on the sacred calendar, but it's the first month and the first day of the civil calendar nationally it's a new year it's a new era and there's something very significant to that that if we have time maybe we will uh, we will look at now if you look at that uh, uh, that chart again take a look over at the next column that gives the month and Abib and Nisan are just two different names for the uh, the same month later on when they were in Babylon they just used the name Nisan which was used by the Babylonians so you'll see both of those then over in the next column beside that you will see the name of the various feasts that's uh, fairly straightforward and then some key passages uh, that go along with those feasts next column over you'll see the big large letters and they summarize four groupings of those feasts and in the first one you will see that the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, they all show that Jesus redeems his people. Uh, he redeems his people through his death, that's Passover, through his burial, that's unleavened bread, and through his resurrection, that's first fruits. Now, some people, because these feasts are so tied together, they say it's just one feast. Uh, but the scripture does divide it up as three separate feasts. Why? Because there's three lessons, but they are topically all arranged together, and then the feast lasts with rejoicing until the the eighth day now we're not going to have time to cover everything in those three days and even in my handout I just barely barely touch on it just as an example I have 19 points of identity between the Passover that were fulfilled and beautifully illustrate are beautifully illustrated in Christ's life um, for example the sheep the lamb had to be set apart for death on the 10th of Abib and Jesus was anointed for his death he said for his burial on the 10th of Abib uh, the sheep were brought to the temple on the same day that Jesus walks to the temple on Palm Sunday in his triumphal entry and it must have been an incredibly emotional thing for him because here's 250,000 sheep that are heading toward the temple to be set apart for their slaughter and here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, going to these same priests who are going to be putting him to death as well. He's surrounded with all of these symbols of his, uh, of his death. Uh, the sheep started to be killed. There was preparation before this, and there's a lot of symbolism in that. But they started to be killed at 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan. And Jesus, and that's Abib as well, Jesus was killed at exactly 3 p.m. You know, he'd been on the cross for several hours, but he died at 3 p.m. after those three hours of darkness, which also were very interesting, on the 14th of Nisan. The Feast of Firstfruits, let's go on to that. On Nisan 16, this was the day when a token harvest of grain was offered up to the Lord as a symbol of the resurrection of Christ and all of the saints with him. But the preparation for that began the day before Christ was crucified, uh, the elders went out to a field of grain. They marked the spot that was going to be harvested later on, and they marked it by pulling together grain and binding it with a rope. That was a symbolism that was involved in that. And that, of course, was the night uh, that Jesus was bound by the elders of Israel. Um, the grain was bound in a field outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron. And guess where Jesus was bound? He was browned outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was right next to that field that they traditionally took that grain from. Guess when the grain was cut down? It was the next evening, just as the Sabbath was approaching, and that was when Christ was taken off the cross. Here's what Edersheim uh, says about the irony of that moment as the throng is carrying this heavy burden of grain at the very moment when Nicodemus and Joseph uh, carry the body to a nearby tomb. He said, a noisy throng followed delegates from the Sanhedrin outside the city and across the Brook Kidron. 
is a very different procession and for a different purpose from the small band of mourners which just about the same time carried the body of the dead Savior from the cross to the rock-hewn tomb wherein no man had yet been laid. While the one turned into the garden, perhaps to one side, the other emerged amidst loud demonstrations in a field across Kedron which had been marked out for that purpose. Well, the next thing they do is they carry this big basket of grain to the temple. They put a lid on it and it stays inside the darkness of that lid for three days and three nights, just like Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. On the 16th of Nisan, it is beaten, it's ground, it's purified, it's offered up to the Lord as an offering. And again, representing not just Jesus' death, because it wasn't one kernel, but many kernels, ground and bound together, offered up, representing the resurrection of the saints. Now, if you look over at the middle column then, with the big print, you can see that the first three sets of feasts, the first three feasts, are tied thematically together. They're all in the same month, they're sequential, and they show that Jesus redeems a people. Pentecost is the next one that occurs 50 days later, and it shows that Jesus equips and he empowers a people. It's the first feast that uses leaven in the bread. Now, leaven is a symbol not only of sin and the growth of sin, but it's a symbol of the kingdom. Uh, kingdom of heaven is like leaven, Jesus said, that leaven is the whole lump. Okay, so once Passover, once Christ's death has done away with the leaven of sin, now the leaven of the kingdom can be coming in and be influencing the world. And then there's the two loaves that are bound together, Jew and Gentile. There's so many neat features of Pentecost. And I'm, I'm not giving all of the details. I want to just give enough so that you can see, yeah, even though it's shadowy, you can see that there is a lot that is in those festivals pointing forward to the time of Christ. Next three feasts all have their focus in the temple. And actually, I should point out, all of the first seven feasts uh, revolve around the temple. Once the temple is destroyed, it is impossible for those feasts to be celebrated any longer. They are so tied in with the sacrificial system. And that, that's a very important point we'll get to a little bit later. But the Feast of Trumpets does what we would expect trumpets to do. It summons, okay? It summons Gentiles to salvation and it calls the Jews to repentance or they are going to be cast out and they will be, uh, they will be judged. Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement, declares that Jesus has provided the covering or the atonement for his people, but it also judges Israel for having trampled underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews, if you study the Day of Atonement in Hebrews, it goes to great lengths to show that the Day of Atonement was despised by Israel, and therefore the Day of Atonement would judge Israel and, uh, and cast uh, Israel out. Um, there were two goats on the Day of Atonement. One was slain, the other was sent off into the wilderness. Next feast, Tabernacles declares God's intention to save the nations and to scatter Israel among the nations. And there's a ton of details on this that we won't get into, but let me just give you a couple. In Genesis 10, we have the table of nations, the table of the Gentiles, 70 nations in all. And from that time on, this, the, the number 70 becomes a symbol for the Gentile nations. You can look that up in just about any Bible encyclopedia or commentary. And so it's very significant that on the Feast of Tabernacles, there are 70 bulls slain for the nations of the world. Now, they're not all slain on the same day. It's a feast that goes over seven days. The first day, there's, let me see if I get it right, 13 that are slain, the next day, 12, then 11, then 10, then 9 indicating that not all the nations come to Christ at the, at the same time. But while this sacrifice is being given for the Gentile nations, Israel is commanded to live in tabernacles or booths that were made out of branches, living out there in the open, whether it was raining or whether it wasn't raining. And this was to symbolize the fact that if they did not receive the atonement, that the Gentiles were receiving, they would be cast and scattered out into the nations and they would be homeless. They would be without um, a homeland. Zechariah 14 is one of several passages indicating that the Feast of Tabernacles shows the, foreshadows the incredible ingathering of harvest of Gentile nations that are in, in the future. Now, this may be one of the reasons why for most of Israel's history, the Israelites refused to celebrate this feast. We're not told why, but listen to this verse in Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8:17 8, says, So the whole assembly, this is in the time 
um, right around where we're reading here. Nehemiah 8, verse 17. So the whole assembly who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. It's an amazing, amazing thought. But now with so many Gentiles coming to the faith, they're maybe catching the significance of this and realizing that uh, God was welcoming the Gentiles. And if the Jews did not keep covenant with God, they could once again be cast out into exile, which of course they were in 70 AD. Now, that's where the Feast of Purim comes in. It answers the question, well, what happens to Israel during the time of the Gentiles? If Tabernacles is describing the discipling of the Gentile nations, what about Israel? Will they be forever rejected? And the Feast of Purim assures God's people that the answer is no, they will not be forever rejected. Yes, they will be cast out into the nations, but God will not permanently ever abandon Israel. In fact, it foreshadows a time when Israel is going to be gathered out of a scattered condition and will be saved. And that is still future to us. Now, before we look at the symbolism, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11. And this is in a small synopsis. It gives kind of a historical overview of what's going to happen from Christ's first coming through to his second coming. Romans chapter 11. And actually, let's back up a little bit to chapter 9 and verse 30. <clears throat> what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Which Israel? Well, it's the Israel that has been stumbled, has been cast away. And uh, it's, not the, it's not the remnant that God rejects. It's the, it's the, the, the nation that God has, has cast off. And in the rest of this uh, chapter here, uh, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, he shows that Israel needs the gospel and then in verses 14 through 21 that they have rejected the gospel. Look at verse 21 of chapter 10. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary, <coughs> contrary people. Continuing in chapter 11, Paul explains in the first 10 verses that God has not rejected Israel totally because he's an Israelite and there's a remnant of Israelites who are being saved. And then in verses 11 and following, he explains that he has not rejected Israel finally. It's not a final and a total re rejection. He's going to, uh, the, the first half is total, the second half is final. They, they as a nation, will be received. Okay, let's uh, start reading at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Jews. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? The Apostle Paul here is contrasting the remnant of Israel with the fullness of Israel. Now, you know what a remnant is. You go to a fabric store, and when they run out of large pieces of fabric, you get these little pieces that are left over. And he's saying that's all that's left of Israel. It's just a remnant. There's hardly any. It's a minority that is being saved, but he says there's coming a time when they will experience majority status. Verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's not the very nation that he has cast away is the nation that's going to be accepted. He did not cast away the remnant, right? The remnant's always been accepted. It's the nation that has been cast away that is going to be accepted back in. And that's an important point to, uh, to understand. In verses 17 and following, he says, Unbelieving Jews, even though they were natural branches of the olive tree, are broken off. Unnatural branches, that's us Gentiles, were grafted into Israel. And uh, God is going to graft back in the branches from the, from the olive tree. Uh, let's read verses 24 through 29. For if you were cut out 
of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. That's general pattern. What's going to happen is that more and more Gentiles are going to become Christian until finally the majority religion in the world is going to be the Christian religion and some point around there Israel as a nation is going to be saved and when they become saved he says it's going to be like life from the dead there's going to be an incredible change that's going to happen to the world uh, God's going to bring in gospel prosperity and peace into their lives and what this does is this causes Paul to be so amazed he just gives his hymn of praise beginning at verse 3 oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now with that as an understanding, let's um, see how this feast anticipates all of that. It's shadowy, okay, in a shadowy way. But uh, there are a number of different forms of elements of, of symbolism and the first one that I've got in your outlines there is that everything we looked at last week really needs to be subsumed underneath the feast um, because the feast is memorializing that battle I'm not even going to cover any of that you just got to remember it from last week uh, in fact some of the most significant stuff you'll find in last week's message but second the feast of Purim was given almost 1,000 years after the first seven festivals were given but it was not given at the end of Israel's history. From 1500 B.C., when Moses gave those festivals until 510 B.C., Israel was in a minority. I mean, the true believers of Israel were in a minority uh, status. In fact, the phrase that keeps coming up is a phrase like this. We are left as a remnant or the remnant of Israel. Or Isaiah 1.9, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom or would have been made like Gomorrah or the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. Or for though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant will return. Or the remnant who have escaped from the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. I think you get the point. There's a remnant theology in the Old Testament, and that was true for two-thirds of Israel's Old Covenant history. But following this incredible revival for the last third of their history for the most part they remain faithful it's in that last generation that they apostatize maybe the last maybe the last even 70 years of their history that they they apostatize from the lord <clears throat> well that's the pattern in the new testament uh history for israel as well for the last 2000 years the true believers from ethnic israel have been a very small remnant and the rest have been treated as Sodom and Egypt. But God prophesies that's going to change. Israel's going to be saved. They're going to flourish for a long period of time. And then at the very end of history, there's going to be another falling away, just like there was prior to 70 A.D. Now, just as a side note, if the, if the Puritan post-millennialists were right, and the Dutch Second Reformation post-millennialists, and if Gary North was right in one of his essays, that all of history is patterned after a sabbatic or a seven-day uh, pattern, uh, each of the days of creation week representing 1,000 years of history, then that really does make an intriguing uh, pattern of, of history because already 6,000 years of history have gone by. And if you count from this second time when Israel was cast into exile, 70 A.D., to the present, That'd be 2,000 years, and if there is a literal another 1,000 years of history left, that would be the same ratio, two-thirds remnant and one-third where there is fullness. That may just be a coincidence, and I probably even shouldn't 
put into a sermon, you know, things that are more speculative like that. But I'm convinced there really is some significance to that. The second point shows a parallel as well. This is the only feast that is in no way connected with the temple, okay, when it was set up. It was impossible to celebrate the other feasts once the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. This one was specifically designed so that it would never, never end. It was started without reference to the temple. It goes way beyond any reference to the temple. Let's just look at a couple of examples. In chapter 9 and verse 27, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation every family every province and every city that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants and so you can see here that there's hints this goes way beyond the time that the temple is going to be destroyed there's no temple now but God's people third interesting thing about this festival is it was established during a time of ungodliness amongst the Jews who had returned to Israel if you look at the uh, the prophetic books that were written during this time, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, every one of them prophesied, talks about, uh, you know, people despising the, you know, the sacrifices and not tithing and being unholy and polluting the sanctuary. And there's all kinds of accusations that God brings upon the, the people in, in Israel. But Zechariah indicates that there is going to be a change following, following a battle. I think it's the same battle that Ezekiel was referring to. And that's the, the way uh, Ezekiel 39 ends. After the Gog-Magog battle, he says, And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. And I think it's a perfect picture of the future. Initially, there's indifference to uh, God and uh, the robbing of his tithes and things like that. But God says that that's all going to change. And we read some scriptures from Zechariah 8 and elsewhere showing that during the time of Esther, incredible numbers of Jews became Christians, became, were drawn close to the Lord. Zechariah says he would draw their hearts to him. He'd pour out his spirit upon them. But there was an even more incredible outreach to Gentiles. There was a hint in Zechariah passage that it was an eight to one... No, a 10 to 1 ratio, 10 Jews, for, uh, 10 Gentiles for every one Jew that was there. And so each book of these contemporaries starts with indifference and then progresses to speak of, uh, of revival coming. And that foreshadows then an even greater revival under Messiah. Now, a fourth parallel to Romans 11. Remember how in Romans uh, 11 he had talked about the fall of Israel bringing riches to the Gentiles? Well, uh, look at point number five there. When Nebuchadnezzar took them captive, they were cast out. It was the fall of Israel. And what happened? God used the remnant of uh, true believers in this nation to bring incredible riches to the Gentiles. For example, Nebuchadnezzar became a true believer. He made decrees that to, in every language and to every people that the only true God is the God of Israel. And uh, you see the same pattern in uh, Darius the Mede. You see it in Cyrus. And uh, even though at this time there's still just a minority of Gentiles and a minority of Jews who are believers, true believers are bringing riches to the Gentiles. That's the pattern that we're wanting to look at here. And then God changes things around under Darius. So in Esther 8, verse 17, it says that many of the people of the land became Jews. Not a minority, not a few, but many. Chapter 9, verse 3, And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai uh, fell upon them. And so Israel's, uh, Israel's salvation brings greater blessings to the Jews. Now, those are panoramic things. I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty of the text here. If you take a look at chapter 9, verses 1 and verse 18, you'll see that this occurs in the last month of the sacred calendar uh, that indicates it's the last feast to have any significance in Israel's history 
From first feast starts at the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, last feast ends, not at the end of history, but at the end of the fullness of the times of the Gentiles. And so I think there's a significance there. Another feature of the last month is that the Bible dictionary indicates this is the month in which the latter rains come. And very significant. Proverbs 16:15 says, In the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. Latter rains were signs of God's blessing. Uh, Hosea 6.3 describes the kingdom of Jesus after the resurrection and divides it up as the former and the latter reigns. I think the former reigns, referring to Pentecost, latter reigns uh, at, uh, at the time of Israel's salvation. Acts 2 quotes Joel 2 as prophesying Pentecost. It speaks of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. It also speaks of the judgment of Israel. But that chapter, what a lot of people miss out, also speaks of the latter reigns, the former and the latter reigns. Uh, older post-millennialists made a, a, a lot about that. Psalm 72.6 says about Jesus, He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. And then he talks about incredible millennial blessings, not only on Israel, but upon all of the Gentiles. Zechariah 10 calls us to ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. And there are similar verses in Ezekiel and Micah. So every time Purim comes along, in the calendar, I would encourage you to use that as a reminder. You need to pray that God's Spirit would be poured out upon Israel, Israel according to the flesh. In uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, it says, though at Pentecost there was a former rain on the Jewish church, a latter rain is still to be looked for when the full harvest of the nation's conversion shall be gathered into God. The spirit of prayer in the church is an index at once of her piety and of the spiritual blessings she may expect from God. When the church is full of prayer, God pours out a full blessing. Bright clouds, rather lightnings, the precursors of rain, showers of rain, literally rain of heavy rain. So we need to be praying for that. Purim anticipates the latter rain of God's Spirit upon Israel and the nations. Now another symbol is that fasting precedes feasting. Now, feasting is emphasized here, but in verse 31, he mandates fasting as well. The fasting occurred on Adar 13, and the feasting was on the next two days. And this, I believe, symbolizes the repentance of Israel and the hunger of Israel for God. And then the feasting, of course, the reversal of that, which is the, uh, the next point. And unfortunately, when Jews celebrate Purim today, it's more like a raucous Mardi Gras affair. Uh, in fact, one of the modern traditions that they have is that uh, you've not celebrated Purim well until you've drunk enough that you can't tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. So you can see how far the Jews have come in their celebration. But we can pray that God would open their eyes to understand this is pointing to Jesus. And all of the other feasts were pointing to Jesus. And apart from that, uh, spirit being poured out upon them, uh, there is no hope for them. Reversal. I won't spend a lot of time on that, but God prophesies that Israel will be born in a day, saved in a day. They'll turn from mourning to joy, as verse 22 says, from fasting to feasting. Chapter 9, verses 19 and 22 mention gift giving. Let's look at verse 19. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. Now, sometimes people denigrate gift-giving as, you know, taking the spirit of Christ, you know, out of, uh, out of a, a holiday. But there can be, you know, over-commercialization of it, but every festival that God gave, gift-giving was a major part of it. Even the Sabbath uh, was a time in which to gift give food, gifts of food and wine to those who did not have any. It symbolizes the grace of God. And of course, the greatest gift is the Lord Jesus Christ. Having given us the Son, He freely gives us all things. And we need to pray that Israel would not be giving gifts to one another just out of their own strength, that they would recognize the only true giving of grace can come as we have experienced the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the interesting symbols in Purim is dice. And the Persian word for that is Purim. We read that in verse 26. So they shall call these days Purim after the name Pur. And uh, I think it's ironic that the feast that shows that there's no such thing as chance uses the symbol of chance in the world to name itself after. <laughs> I think it's cool. A lot of times pagans, you know, they'll take words from our vocabulary and they'll turn it to a perverted use. Well, here's God taking something 
It's a symbol of chance. And he says, no, we're going to name this feast after it because my providence controls everything, even the so-called chance things of life. So I, I think it's really a cool, a cool name. It may even be chance-like events um, in history that lead to Israel's salvation, uh, just like it was here in the book of, of Esther. Um, and, of course, we know there is no such thing as chance since God controls that. But we tend to talk like they're flukes or chance events, like the sparrow that flew over the electrical station, dropped a little twig just right so that there was a 69,000-volt flashover, destroyed, you know, two insulators, blew out three, or was it two, I forget, uh, $69,000 uh, uh, fuses. And then people think, oh, yeah, that was a fluke. That was a, a chance event. But we, we've learned in this book there is nothing that is chance. No sparrow that falls falls accidentally. No hair that falls from your head is an accidental uh, falling. And so God takes this symbol that people have always identified with chance, and he says, no, I want you guys to think of that as the symbol of how pervasive my providence is. And I think we, every time we throw dice, ought to think, you know, just reminds me, none of this can happen. By Actually, if there, was, if there was chance, there would be no such thing as statistics of probability. There couldn't be. There couldn't be because there would, it would never there would never be any probability if there was chance and so the very dice i think to me is a perfect symbol of the providence of god rather than being a symbol of chance this is also called a day of rest it was a, the last sabbath day that was instituted verses 16 through 18. the remainder of the jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and rest from had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies but they did not lay a hand on the plunder this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th day, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. And then down in verse 22, again he talks about the rest that they have. Job's points out that the way that this is structured, it has to be a symbol of eschatological rest in their future. They've not entered into rest yet. They've not entered into their Sabbath rest. But Job uh, points out that um, uh, this is something in the future for them. Pray for Israel's peace. Pay, pray for their rest. And then finally, verse 30 speaks of the words of peace and truth that were sent to all the Jews in verse 30. Now, that's the Scripture. That's the Scripture. Purim, every Purim, the Jews read the entire book of Esther. And when they read through that book in their service, they have little shakers called Gregors that say, this is a celebration. And every time Haman's name is mentioned, they stomp their feet and boo. And uh, whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned, they cheer. Now, <clears throat> to me, the irony of this whole thing is if the Jews are right that Mordecai's name is simply an Aramaic word that means pure myrrh, then this is really an irony of how the Jews have approached this whole subject. Myrrh is bitter, extremely bitter, but it's also sweet-smelling. It's a perfume. And the Jews, all they can see is bitterness when they look at Jesus, whom I think is symbolized by Mordecai here. But there's coming a day when it will be sweetness. It will be perfume. Uh, to them. But this reading of the law is so important. They have taken traditions of the, of the elders, the traditions of the Pharisees, which have been written in the Talmud, which contradict the Bible left and right, and they've neglected the reading of the law. Uh, the, the reading of the law is not first and foremost, other than here the reading of Esther. Usually they're reading out of the Talmud. Listen, this is what Paul says happens to Jews who read the Old Testament without their eyes enlightened. It says, but their minds were blinded for until this time, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I would encourage you to pray for Israel, that they would have that veil taken away and enter into the liberty and the joy of the people of God. And so the book of Esther indicates not only Gentiles becoming believers, chapter 8, verse 17, but pervasive influence of, of them, at least in pictorial form, chapter 9, verse 3. 
We don't know how God's going to do it, whether he's going to have a Jew in some position of power or influence that will um, uh, turn their hearts. We're not told. But uh, chapter 10 indicates this whole thing of the, the influence uh, of the Jews at that point in the kingdom. They're going to be saved at some point. But it says here in chapter 10, King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. In other words, it's still a worldwide empire. But now it's on behalf of Israel, verse 2 and verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews, well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Just prior to this, Nehemiah returns to Israel and there's reforms that are brought uh, to Israel. And so we're talking about the greatest revival in the Old Testament being a tiny, feeble, shadowy image of the incredible revival that God's going to bring in the future. Now, how is God going to do it? I want to very quickly run through 10 things, and we're just reviewing here what we've already looked at, 10 things that were in place before this revival, and it may be an indicator of what God is going to raise up before Israel is saved. Both Isaiah 19 and Zechariah 14 imply that God is going to use warfare against Israel to shake them up, a wake-up call. Both did his prayer and fasting. All of the people were pray, uh, all of the people, the Jews were in prayer and fasting. And historically, any time that there has been a mighty movement of God's Spirit, God has preceded it by raising up prayer and fasting. And so it's encouraging to me that all over this world there's a prayer and fasting movement that's been growing. Third item that may be needed is a church that looks different than the world, antithesis. Chapter 3, verse 8, Haman complains, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples. We need to ask ourselves, are we really different from the world? Do they see us as being weird or do we accommodate ourselves so much to, to the world, you know, and terms of uh, courtship and marriage and education and everything else that we don't look any different than the world. Uh, there needs to be that kind of an antithesis. The only way anything of significance can happen according to Romans 11 is when the Gentiles are doing something that the Jews will be jealous of. Is there anything we're doing that the Jews would be jealous of? You know, I don't know that there's that much different. There has to at least be a remnant somewhere to drive them to jealousy. A fourth thing that we can pray for is leaders who burn for the passion for the whole body of Christ like Mordecai did. Chapter 10 says he was seeking the good of his people. And so we need people, we need leaders who are not just concerned about their own congregations, but are concerned about the churches in Omaha as a whole. They're concerned about what's happening to Christians who are being persecuted in Asia and in other countries. Uh, we need leaders who have a passion for uh, for, for this world, we need even people like Esther who cry, who are burdened when they see. It could have been easily a situation of out of sight and out of mind for her, but God would not let her put it out of her mind. Another thing that we need is people who have a faith to believe in the face of attack. Chapter 8, verse 16, Jews rejoiced in victory even though the genocide bill had not been revoked. They know there's a battle coming up and yet they're rejoicing. They know that they're going to enter into the victory. And uh, I think there's... Uh, too much last day's madness. It's a virus that's uh, crept into the church and it keeps people from believing that there can be any victory in the future. And so we've got to have a people, even in the face, I mean, who, who has a right to be more pessimistic than these Jews did? They're about to be annihilated. And yet by faith, they can rejoice in God's promises. They can rejoice that they have the victory. We need to fill our minds with scriptures like I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know? We need to fill our friends' minds with passages like that that can take them from discouragement into faith, uh, faith to believe God. Uh, we need a church with integrity. These uh, Jews could very easily have snuck some of that plunder for themselves. We saw before that this was devoted to the temple, most likely. I think uh, uh, Jordan's thesis is correct on that. They did not. They had integrity. Esther could have been bought by Haman's pleading. She did not. She was not. She had integrity. Mordecai could have been intimidated by compro into compromise. He did not. He had integrity. Another example of this is the next point, a church that will never compromise even when it hurts. And it would have been so much easier for Mordecai to just bow down and, you know, maybe get promoted by him. I can continue to live, but this is just a small compromise. 
but he would have missed out. Yes, he may have been advanced, but he would have missed out on so much if he had done this. And I think we have Christians who have mixed Agagite philosophy with Christianity. They've mixed, in other words, the, the ideas of the world with their, their own practices in Christianity. What we've got is syncretism in the church. We don't have pure Christianity that follows God's biblical blueprints. Um, there's a t-shirt you can buy that says intolerance is a beautiful thing. Uh, Mordecai was intolerant. I mean, he said, no, God's word is black and white. We cannot step over that. Now, sometimes people become too intolerant, but intolerance can be a beautiful thing. We need leaders like Mordecai who will challenge us to die for Christ. We're all going to die at some point or another, but man, what a shame it would be if we die before we have accomplished anything of eternal significance. Mordecai challenged Esther to talk to the king, even if it meant her death. He challenged the Jews to be bold in fighting and defending themselves. And the followers responded with boldness, a willingness to die in protecting their families. Esther's words, if I perish, I perish, I think need to be words that are on our lips. Not, you know, if it's comfortable or if it's convenient, but Lord, if your glory is to be lifted up, I want to do the things that you are calling me to do, even if it means my death. My life is on the altar. We need believers with the boldness of Esther and Mordecai. And if we're to see the evangelization of the world in our time, if we're to see these prophecies, we've got to be people of the book. And so I, I just encourage you to be challenged by this passage, this Feast of Purim, to believe God and to start making changes in your own life and reaching out, stepping out, providing the, the asking God to provide in your life the, 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 the means to the end that are needed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. We, we thank you for the feasts that show the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and its application in history. And I pray, O oh Father, that you would enable us to uh, have the faith that does not waver in the face of darkness, that uh, is guided by uh, your word and everything that we do. And I pray, Father, that encouraged by your victory that is predestined uh, to happen in this world, that we would place our mark in society as part of the army that is advancing the cause of your kingdom. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.